So I had an interesting thought last night. About every week, I get emails from a service that tracks this show's listening audience across all platforms, and then lets me know if I was popular enough to chart. And this past week, it turns out that I was. In the intervening week between last episode and now, for a day or two, this show effectively came out of nowhere to take the number 10 spot on the South African podcast charts, which means that Hidden History has now made appearances in the top 100 charts in, I believe, 12 different countries, which is a strange feeling in and of itself, but not the point. Doing this show, there's practically no audience interaction, you can't leave comments, you don't see my face, and I get, quite frankly, very unreliable data about how each episode performs. But it got me thinking. This show has enough listeners that it can achieve moments of relatively high popularity all around the world, and I produce this show in order to help move the Overton window by teaching people about history and left politics. If it was 1950, some might call this show subversive. Though not using the same verbiage, that attitude very much still exists in the United States. To the Republicans, anyone left of Ronald Reagan is a radical leftist, and because the Democrats are, quite frankly, weak, they capitulate to that narrative, attempting to reassure the electorate by moving their policy platforms further to the right. This ratcheting effect makes it ever harder to make meaningful leftward progress through an electoral system, as both parties will use all powers at their disposal, granted by their proximity to capital and their control of the police surveillance state, to crush dissenting voices and insurgent popular movements. So, what am I getting at? What am I really trying to say? I suppose, to simplify it a bit, I'm saying that this show that you're listening to right now, with its left-wing and anti-establishment messaging, has a large enough audience to become popular not just in America, but a host of other places, which also means that it's popular enough to be monitored by the United States government. You're listening to Hidden History. And this is episode 82, Lists. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and of course, www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like what I do, then subscribe, leave a rating, or if you want to support the show in a more direct way, you can click on the link in the description of this episode, which leads to Hidden History's freshly created Patreon page. Now, from that intro, I'm obviously talking about mass surveillance, but I also eventually want to talk about the detachment of our government towards the enforcement mechanisms of that surveillance. And this, in general, is a topic that, if you don't talk about it correctly, it makes you sound like you just got back from your tinfoil hat fitting. Obviously, that is not the vibe I'm going for this week. Now, mass surveillance in America has a very long and intricate history. I actually talked about a significant point in that history 10 episodes back in number 72, 
take me to church. So I'm not going to retread that same ground. Mainly, obviously, from the title, I want to talk about the lists, about the sheer breadth of our mass surveillance apparatus. There's this story, a little bit funny, mainly tragic, about the left counterculture folk singer Phil Ox. Towards the end of his life, he started to heavily abuse drugs and alcohol, which preceded a precipitous psychological decline that ultimately robbed him of his ability to write and perform music. During this period, he would go on long rants about how he believed that the FBI and the CIA were watching his every move. His friends, of course, chalked it up to paranoid delusions. But after he took his own life on April 9th, 1976, it turned out that he had been right. The FBI had been watching him because of his politics, and they had been doing so for so long that the dossier they had assembled on his every movement spanned 500 pages. These were also the same people who had attempted to blackmail Dr. Martin Luther King into committing suicide. But after all, that was a long time ago. The FBI supposedly ended COINTELPRO in 1971, though I can probably imagine they simply transferred its functions to another program. So, let's talk about a more modern example. When Edward Snowden exposed the existence of the NSA's mass surveillance system, PRISM, the global population was about 7.2 billion. So through PRISM, the NSA had actively been spying on one out of every seven people on Earth. According to reporting by The Intercept, authored by Alice Sperry, even though the vast, vast majority of terrorism in the United States comes from far-right extremists, since 2010 when documents became available, the FBI has actively spied on black and Muslim activists, Occupy Wall Street, anti-war advocates, environmentalists, and advocates for peace and normalization with Cuba, Iran, and Palestine. In 2008, the FBI sent undercover agents to infiltrate anti-war movements across the Midwest, and when their agents couldn't find any proof that suggested they were anything other than peaceful, they manufactured it, leading to massive raids across the country and the subpoenaing of 14 activists to appear before a grand jury, who were then bounced around the court system for years without being charged with a crime. When Walmart learned that protesters from Occupy might lend a hand to Walmart employees protesting for better working conditions, the FBI was more than glad to lend a hand, infiltrating the groups and keeping them under constant surveillance. The FBI was a fixture at the protests at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And out of all the activists at Standing Rock to get a prison sentence, the most severely punished was Red Fawn Fallis, charged for firing a gun, which belonged and was registered to her romantic partner, an undercover informant for the FBI. After the protests in Ferguson, the FBI tracked protesters across the country, monitoring their emails and phones. They did the same for Muslim leaders and activists. 
If you were politically active in college in the mid-2010s and were asked by a stranger if you supported Palestine, that might have been an undercover FBI agent. After the murder of Michael Brown at the hands of Darren Wilson, the FBI created a fake ideology called Black Identity Extremism that he used to target peaceful activists in elaborate sting operations, providing people with weapons and plans only to immediately arrest them. This post-9-11 surveillance state began under Bush, was strengthened under Obama, and it continues in the Trump administration, where the FBI and the rest of the national security apparatus are monitoring those peacefully protesting against the concentration camps on the border and against police brutality, labeling them anarchist extremists. So what that means, in effect, is that if you've ever taken a principled political stand in your life, well then we're all on a list together somewhere. I said in the beginning of this episode that it would largely be based on the expansiveness of mass surveillance, but I suppose that's not entirely what I want to talk about. In order to kind of briefly get over this last topic, I'm going to need to expand that to be the national security state as a whole. So, If I asked you what a disposition matrix was, what would you say? I can probably imagine that those words mean nothing to you. Well, a disposition matrix is a kill list. Or, well, I suppose that's not being fair. A disposition matrix is a list of people that the government wants to extrajudicially murder via drone strike and also extrajudicially kidnap and disappear to secret torture prisons. It might seem like I'm exaggerating a little bit, trying to get a little bit of chuckle out of you, trying to disarm this very serious subject through hyperbole. But I'm not. That is exactly what they are, and that is exactly what they do. The disposition matrix was first developed under the Obama administration and uses a secret set of rules to determine who will live and who will die. According to a 2012 article in the New York Times, officials from the Obama administration came together every week to determine the fate of the names on the kill list, earning the meetings the ghoulish name Terror Tuesdays. In an article for Rolling Stone, Matt Taibbi writes that we kill suspects whose names we know, and those we don't. We kill the guilty and the not guilty. We kill men, but also women and children. We kill by day and by night. We fire missiles at confirmed visual targets, but also at cell phone numbers we hope belong to targets. It is unknown how a name appears on the Matrix. In 2014, former director of the CIA and NSA, Michael Hayden, said, quote, We kill people based on metadata. And when the American drones or gunships incinerate innocent people, like a wedding party in Yemen or a hospital in Kunduz, Afghanistan, 
there is quite literally no legal recourse. American courts consider cases of wrongful death in illegal American drone strikes to be non-justiciable, literally outside the reach of the law. Our drone program, fighting illegal and undeclared wars in nations around the globe, is one of the cruelest and most blatant examples of the national security state's influence on foreign policy. In October 2013, Zubair, a 13-year-old boy from Pakistan, stood before Congress and said, I no longer love blue skies. In fact, I now prefer gray skies. The drones do not fly when the skies are gray. When skies brighten, drones return, and we live in fear. These two things, domestic surveillance and foreign terror, are two sides of the same coin. While administrations change, and with them come fractional differences in legislative policy, the goals of American intelligence and of American empire weather the storm of changing directors. As American politics ratchet further and further to the right, each successive executive commits further and further to the idea of the all-encompassing national security state. These institutions, the CIA, the FBI, in this administration, have been lauded by liberals who see them as agents of positive change, rooting out the corruption of the Trump administration. Make no mistake. These institutions are not your friend. They do not exist to serve and protect you. They are, the FBI in particular, an American secret police. They exist only to sabotage left movements at home, wage endless secret war, and install right-wing dictatorships abroad. There can be no justice and no peace while some of the most powerful and well-funded institutions in the country devote their resources to the destruction of progress. But I suppose the relationship between liberalism and the police state is a topic for another time. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on Spotify, review on Apple Podcasts, and you are definitely on a list. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.